Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7. For those of you who gave me a shout out after last week's episode telling me how much you enjoyed my chat with cricketer Ryan Harris, a massive thank you to you and I'm so glad you are enjoying the chats. Also, a big thanks to my cousin Stu Larson who has provided me with the music playing in the background throughout my podcast. Thanks Stu and if you like the sound, you can find him on iTunes and YouTube. So let's jump into episode seven. And remember, if you're enjoying it, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and share it around to your friends. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get into it. Just before we get stuck into this episode, I just wanted to apologize once again for some slight audio glitches throughout this episode. I know it's not going to upset your listening to this guest. It is an awesome chat. So enjoy. Well, at long last, Rugby Union finally gets its time in the sun on the hard yards for podcast number seven. This week's guest is Australia's World Cup winning captain from 1991, Nick Farr-Jones. Welcome, Nick, and thanks for joining me from Sydney for a chat about all things rugby from when you were still an amateur when you played for the Wallabies. It's hard to believe. Yeah, g'day, Matty. It's really good to talk to you, mate. I hope you and your family are all well during these these challenging times and... Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'd love to have a dollar for every time, you know, someone said, well, what did you do after rugby? People just assume that um, that you were a professional player and that you had to look for a job post-rugby. But, you know, as I said, uh, the number of times I've had to tell people, well, I was actually a student, a law student and then a lawyer. And, um, you know, during my, my playing days and, uh, yeah, it, it surprises a lot of people. It sure does, and I know we've talked about it in the past, so it's not a surprise to me tonight. But let's um, let's retrace a little bit earlier into your younger years, and and was it always rugby union for you, Nick? No, it wasn't that. I, I grew up in the S- Sutherland Shire of Sydney, so the Sharks come from there. Um, we we first lived at Guymere, a little suburb in the Shire, and then moved down to Cronulla. And uh, my dad was a as a retail pharmacist mum was you know she studied physiotherapy they both studied at sydney uni um yeah to me when i look at my four kids you know on their devices these days you know and we talk a bit about this yeah by spending three four hours a day on it it you know drives us to drink and what have you i mean i i think (laughs) back to my days you know that square you know quarter of an acre of backyard at guy basically my recollections are running into my brother's under the hills hoist being outside, playing a million games. You're always outside until mum called you in. Um, we used to enjoy golf as one of the many sports that we loved. And you would always, if you're playing a game of sport, you'd put up your best golf ball as, as a bet against wow. your brothers. And so the winner took all. And, um, and, and they were all sorts of sports. You know, we were nippers, we we're into swimming. I swam twice a day when I was a youngster. Um, when I went to Newington and could no longer swim because it was three hours on a train, I did middle distance running. Um, we loved golf. We loved tennis. Um, you know, Jack Nicholas, Bjorn Borg were my heroes growing up right. um, as a youngster. But soccer was my big game um, wow. in the winter sport. So, you know, it, you know, soccer was the game I loved. It was one of the first, um, the FA Cup finals, one of the first you know, sort of live streams we'd get back, you know, mm-hmm. from Wembley Stadium that I can remember. You know, I'd go to bed at eight. Mum, make sure you wake me up at one in the morning to watch the FA Cup final. Um, you know, I still remember, I think it was 73, 1973, when Sunderland as a second division team won the FA Cup. And and that's sort of indelibly printed in my mind. And as I said, I, at the age of 12, 13, the parents, my parents put a straw hat on my head and put me on a train for three hours a day to go to Newington College. And I can still well remember turning up in 1974 at my first winter training. And Mr. Woosnam, Clive Woosnam, he was my geography teacher. Uh, he became my first rugby coach. And I had the privilege of, of um, delivering a eulogy at his farewell service a couple of years ago. And I still remember turning up at that um, awesome. at training and saying, Mr. Woosnam, where are the round balls? And he said... <laughs> He said, we don't play with them at, uh, at this place. And, you know, back then in 74, Newington only played rugby. They now are a very strong soccer school. Um, but, you know, I remember him saying, no, we, we, we play this game called rugby. And I, I knew of league of what have you, but I didn't know of rugby union. And I said, is there a position wow. for me, Mr. Woosnam? And he said, it's easy. He said, you're the littlest kid. Here's a number nine jersey. A 
effectively that was what it was like. And, you know, uh, and I can still remember Maddie just saying, you know, I saw steel studs for the first time. I'd oh, never yeah. seen steel studs. And I said, Mr. Wisdom, what happens when someone treads on you with those, those things? Uh, I can tell you, mate, 20 tests against the All Blacks later, which I was lucky enough to play. I'm not sure lucky's the right uh, the right adjective, <laughs> but you still soon find out what happens when someone treads on you with steel studs. That's an interesting point you make because to me as a as a professional golfer, there's no contact. It's, you know, I'm not running into opposition or they're not running into me. They just are better than me or I'm better than them on the day. But as a little guy, as as your your coach, Mr. Wisdom, said to you and gave you the number nine, how do you deal with that as a fear, not only as a young kid, but also, like you said, going through your career and playing against these massive guys from the All Blacks and England, I'm sure, and... You know, you're you're behind a bunch of massive guys at the base of the scrum too, I guess. So, you know, how do you deal with that fear, Nick, of being the little guy? Matt, Matt I don't think, um, you know, when when I say a little guy, I mean, I, I was at the age of 12 and 13. Yeah, sure. Um, but I, I was always super fit because I was a swimmer and a middle distance runner. So I was always yeah. the fittest person in the team. The 10 years I played for the Wallabies, I was always the fittest. It didn't mean I was the strongest. I was hopeless in sure. the gym. I never went in the gym. Um, <laughs> but I did a lot of work in, in relation to, you know, just using my body weight, push-ups, sit-ups, um, burpees, all that sort of stuff to be super fit. And I was very resilient. It, it never bothered me. It was never anything I thought about. Um, I, I, I was I was considered a, a big halfback. Um, yeah, you know, sure. I grew in, at the age of about 18, 19 when I went to Sydney Uni. My playing weight was about mid-80s, 85 yeah. kilograms. And so people called me a big halfback. And I used to play a lot of the short side game. And, you know, it, 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 it's the, the question's interesting. I've, I've never really had anyone ask me that. Um, and it's, it, it was never something I thought about in my career. Because yeah, sure. one of the great things about rugby is there's a position for everyone of every every body type. Um, you know, whether you're a tall giraffe or a you know a slippery, skinny winger or you know a, a burly um, you know squat front rower or <laughs> um, you know the the, the background. There's a position for everyone. Is what and it's one of the things that I think is you know unique about our game, and it's a great thing about our game and. Um, you know, I think when you get the privilege of pulling on a representative jersey, particularly if it's the, the gold wallaby jersey, it's just something you don't think about. I mean, I, you just say, bring it on. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that occasionally, you know, when, when you had to eyeball the harker, you try and find a little skinny white guy. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many of them there. You normally, because you know, if I was captaining the team, it was probably Buck Shelford I had to eyeball. But, um it just wasn't something you thought about because you knew you were capable of bringing down anyone as long as you did the right technique and you knew that you were resilient and strong and, and, um, and, and, and tough, you know, mentally and physically tough. And, you know, that's, that's what hours and hours and hours yeah. of training gives you. Yeah, I think that's the important point, isn't it? That, you know, you're not walking out there without the training load behind you and the understanding of what you've got to do and the teammates alongside you that, you know, are going to stand up and not take a backward step either. So, you know, no, that's... Uh... Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely right. And, um, you know, I, I, I never can ever, you know, feel that I was ever ever sort of physically intimidated or, or worried about people. Mind you, I was lucky to get out one year before Jonah Lomu came along. <laughs> that's right. He, he trampled a few fellas, didn't he? Yeah, that was a bit of a runaway express. <laughs> you spoke about the Harker briefly there, Nick. Can you touch on that? what that experience was like lining up with the Wallabies when the Harker was happening? It's interesting, Matt, because people think, again, just like I mentioned to you, that they assume that the game's always been professional. Um, international teams only really started to stand up to the Harker in 1987. We we had the disappointment of getting knocked out by the French in, in the semi-final of the 87 World Cup. Um, we played maybe a month later at the unloved in a Western Sydney ground, Concord Oval. We played a test match against the All Blacks, just a one-off test match for the Bledisloe. Uh -huh. Alan Jones, um, strangely and interestingly, picked a guy called David Cody, who got sent off in the second minute of our third, fourth playoff in Rotorua 
uh, for kicking a, a Welshman in the head. That was the third, fourth playoff in the World Cup. And so for some strange reason, um, Alan picked David Cody to captain the Wallabies just on one occasion, as Codes did. Andrew Slack was, was um, relegated and, and not selected. And, you know, typically you get that knock on the door um, a couple of minutes before you have to go out and build out your anthem and, and um, you know, strut your stuff for the 80 minutes. Um, Cody said to us before we went out, uh, he said, guys, rather than do what we normally do, stand 50 metres away from these guys and try and ignore the harker, let's eyeball the bastards. And <laughs> that was the first time in international rugby that, that anyone had done that um, in 1987. And so we did. We stood 10 metres from them. We eyeballed it. And, and then the rest of the world latched onto it and thought it's a great idea. But, Matt, can I just say that for two reasons, um, I think it's a really, really important thing and I, I love standing up and, and eyeballing it because, firstly, sport involves respect, respect of your opposition. And, mm-hmm. and if you're 50 metres away and turning your back on them, and, and for a country of four and a half million people, I, I hugely respect what New Zealand have done over the decades. Over you the have state. to. You they have are to. the most amazing country in, in what they've done. And that all-black brand is, is in the absolute top five of sporting brands yeah. um, globally. And, and so rather than be 50 metres away, stand up, pay them the respect of, of eyeballing a great tradition, which is the haka. Um, but at the same time, my second point is send a message back to them. Mm. The message is, guys, we respect you as a wonderful rugby nation, but if you're going to beat us today, you're going to have to play bloody well. Because you have, to, go, you have to come over us. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not going to stand down and we're prepared. And, you know, the, the 20 tests I played against the All Blacks, Matt, we were just slightly off being uh, 50-50. Um, yeah. You know, we won eight, we drew one, and we, we lost the rest. And so we're extremely competitive those years. But you know, it was those two things. One, respect. Secondly, you're going to have to play bloody well to beat us today, guys. With that, Nick, what's, you know, your take on, you know, let's talk about Australia and New Zealand. And, and you know, you said you were nearly 50-50. It doesn't seem like it's close to 50-50 anymore. Um, what's well, your take it's on... Probably about, it's probably about 90-10. Yeah, what's your take on why? Any oh, idea? Look, look, I don't yeah. know. I'm not in the inner sanctums these days. Um, you know, I, 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 it's, it's really hard to put your finger on it. I, I yeah, just sure. can't think that we're... And, and, and I said this a number of years ago. Um, I just don't think we're mentally tough. Mm. Um, I, I just don't think that the guys understand what mental toughness is about and what's required there. And that, that includes a whole bunch of things, Matt. I mean, sure. when I talked about being the fittest guy on the team, I, I would do what was required and, and it's not, you know, going in and spending your whole day watching videos and doing weight training and, and watching tapes and all that. But I would do whatever I did in a team thing, but I would probably double that time in my own preparation, physically. Sure. Whenever I went out for a run, uh, I would make sure I came back in pain. Um, you know, the old mm-hmm. the old saying, no pain, no gain. Yeah. that. Winning to me was critically important um, and leading the guys when I led the Wallabies for half the, half the period of the decade that I played for them was critically important. And setting the example and, and playing hardball as well, um, demanding sure. and, and And when you're at training and when you're preparing, you know, I, I, would, get, I would get a dose of the, you know, the, the, the shits, Matt, um, when, <laughs> when guys were buggerising round, when guys sure. were... were you know, dropping balls and, and, you know, we'll get it right next time. I mean, I was a stickler for getting it right. And mm. um, I was pretty hard in that way. And, and, and so, you know, I, I always was very confident that, you know, the preparation, if you're prepared right, that you, you, you could strut your stuff on the day. And I probably got a bit of that from Alan Jones and then Bob Dwyer, my second coach, sure. captain. Um, you know, he was, he was a stickler for, you know, for getting it right, for, you know, perfect practice and perfect performance. Yeah. Would you say, do you think there's, you know, talking back about the amateur and pro- professional world that we're living in now, is that a relevant factor in that back then to play for the Wallabies was, you know, this incredible thing that 
wasn't necessarily a money thing. It was just an incredible and thing. It was just it was a wonderful. It was a wonderful privilege. Yeah. Um, and and it gave you the passport to the world, and that was a fantastic privilege. Yeah. And it allowed you to meet people. I mean, I love the fact that we mainly kicked off at three o'clock, um, as opposed to getting dictated to by broadcasters because it sure. allowed you to meet the opposition. And I've got great mates from all around the world. You, you can enjoy what the French call the troisième mi-temps, the third half. Um, to me, uh-huh. that was a really, really special part of the game. I mean, that's after you know, the game. Yeah, the third half, Le Troisième yeah. I mean, Ange and I, as you know, and the family lived in France, in Paris for four years when I joined Société Générale, the French investment bank. Um, Le Troisième Mitton is a great expression, but the third half was really special. And yeah. you know, I feel for the, the modern professional guys because they don't. They're going to, you know, sort of media conferences at 9.30, 10. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't have liked to have played in that sort of environment. But, look, I do think that the guys mentally, as I said, can be a bit soft. Um, you know, I think that they just turn up at sort of nine o'clock and do whatever they have to do. And it must be just ground dog day. Um, you know, here we are again and here we are looking at Mm. these videos. And, you know, when I went to do my two or three or three and a half hours of training, you get in there, you work your ass off, you get it done, you go home. And, And one other thing, Matt, is that I think, you know, as a lawyer, um, you had to make decisions every day. You, you had clients. Um, you had mm. to constantly make decisions. And, and the guys now, because of these, you know, spending the whole day, you know, at, 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 you know, preparing for, you know, either super rugby or a test match, they're not making serious decisions. They're not making life decisions. Sure. I think we're going to have a big reset in rugby because we're going to have far lower revenues coming in Mm. Um, and I would go back to, you know, preparing guys probably maximum of three or four days a week and a half day and get the guys out there on part-time employment, get them making life decisions because I think they'll be a lot better uh, when they're playing rugby, having to make decisions if they're constantly doing it in their lifestyle. Yeah, and fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating, Nick. And and I think also the you know the the take for granted almost you know that I'm making gazillions of dollars playing rugby. You know, yeah, that's... and they've got Matt. They've got you know pl- player agents blowing smoke up their bums um, and what have you. Um, yeah, no. So I think there's a lot of things that are going to have to change and be reset in in rugby. Now we're not in the same position as say AFL and. NRL because sure. they've got their broadcasting revenues and, and that's all locked away and they've got a lot of their sponsorship that are on board and they've got their programs and their product all sorted out and it's mm. not reliant on international competition to any great extent. Sure. So their games are not going to change a lot, but our game's going to change significantly and, and we've got to take a long five, perhaps ten-year vision to get a reset of our game and I think it's going to be some lean years. And, and I think that, you know, that's going to greatly impact um, some of the privileges the players have enjoyed in, uh, in the last two decades. Let's fast forward a little bit towards that 90 World, 91 World Cup. Talk us through the lead up into that World Cup and where Australia and sat in the landscape of the World Cup. And then... I'd love to touch on when you get injured in the quarterfinal and, and what happens there with regards to your injury and how you felt about whether you were going to play in the semifinals or miss the finals. And But let's talk about the lead-up into that World Cup. and Where was Australia in the landscape and on World Rugby? Do you want to go back to 89? Sure. Um, so I was, I was appointed captain out of the blue. I mean, it's interesting maybe for your listeners that Bob Dwyer, who took over from Alan Jones as the national coach in 88, never actually called me. I didn't really know Bob Dwyer. Um, I was a Sydney Uni guy. He was a Ramwick guy. Um, we really didn't know each other. He didn't even call me to say, I'm thinking about making you captain. Um, <laughs> I, I heard, you know, effectively on the, the midday news. Um, yeah, well. That was a bit bizarre. Um, Bob and I got on very well. We, we argued and debated, but we always got on the same page and we're great friends to this day, as, as I am with Alan Jones. Um, 
but the first two years I capped in Australia, just to cut to the chase, Matt, I could go into detail about it, but we we're hugely inconsistent, a little bit like your golf. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we it's could true. be we could be great one we could be great one day. Yes. And literally seven days later we could we could play like busted bums. And, and I can think about the eighty eight series against the All Blacks, I think about the eighty nine series against the British Lions. I think about particularly a French tour at the end of eighty nine, um, when we cleaned them out by thirty points in Strasbourg and then lost by seven points in the second test when we're about to become the first wallaby team to win a series on French soil. Um, and I won't go into the detail, but a few of us went away. Basically, Bob, Bob Temple and our assistant coach, Michael Liner, my vice captain, myself. And we tried to work out why that was, why we had that great inconsistency. And you might think that we just got complacent in certain games. What we realised after having a weekend away, analysing the performance, thinking about the build-up, looking at the way we played in the bad games particularly, the problem was we were too desperate to win, probably a bit like your golf again. We got scoreboard focused um, and we understood that we had to become process driven. And what is process? It's everything that I do in my position around my game. It's my, my passing, my short side game, my kicking, my organisation of the defence with my forwards. It's my defensive game. Most important for me is... And number nine, it's my lateral vision um, because I get first use of possession. So my judgment in what I do with it is critical. And so the lateral vision, taking everything around me, where are the black jerseys, where are the gold jerseys, where is the space, where is the decision, the communication from the likes of Liner and Campisi helping me with that lateral vision and the decision making. That's everything that goes into the process of my game. Of course, what goes way beyond the 80 minutes. Um, it goes into everything you do in preparation. But process is effectively doing your job as well as you can, minimising the errors. You know, you golfers, don't get yourself in a position where you know you're going to drop a shot. Mm. You know, hit a ball if you, it's not a birdie hole to a place where, you know, if you make a mistake, you can get out of jail. That's your process so that you... Sure. You get, you know, and, and, and then look at the, the holes that you can attack. And, and it's the same in rugby. It's the same in sport. It's the same in life. Um, get the process right. My particular game, minimise the errors. Trust the 14 people around me to do their job. You know, it's a team event. Now, maybe it's your caddy. It's everything you do in preparation and what have you with your coach and what have you. But if everyone does their job, at the end of the 80 minutes as difficult as it might be when you're playing that World Cup final against England on 2 November, then look up and see what the scoreboard tells you. Mm. But we, it, it, it didn't happen overnight for my Wallaby team. It took us probably six, seven months to get that culture change. Yeah, wow. The last 25 tests, I think we won about 21, 22 of them um, because we, we forgot the scoreboard. We concentrated on on process, and the scoreboard looked after itself. And yeah, so that yeah. was that was the lead up to the '91 World Cup. And you hear that a lot in sport, don't you? Take care of the process, and the results will take care of themselves. But that's a really real example of it's a yeah, real Matt, example of how it happened. Matt, you didn't hear a lot of it, uh, you know, back in the '90s and the early '90s. Yeah. Let me just take you because your second. Yeah, that's true. Question, the second part of your question was, you know, when we nearly got knocked out and I got injured in that quarterfinal against Ireland, um, I went off after 20 minutes and Michael Liner takes over the captaincy. Against the run of play, Gordon Hamilton scores with four minutes to go. Now, Noddy, Noddy Liner was sensible enough to go up and ask the referee how long to go. The referee said four minutes. Um, John Eels, as he'll admit, the great, one of the greatest leaders we've ever had in Australian sport, one of the greatest players. First thing he thinks about is his dry cleaning because he put it in on that, uh, on that, <laughs> on that uh, Saturday morning. And, of course, it wouldn't come back until Monday. He's assuming we'll go through to play, you know, semi-five <laughs> against New Zealand. And we would have been flying home the next day on the Sunday had we been beaten. So he was thinking, geez, what about my drug cleaning? <laughs> but getting back to process <laughs> and what Noddy did, he spoke to the guys behind the line as they were taking the conversion. He said, guys, we have four minutes to win. We're going to kick long. Um, they will kick out, you know, to, to sure. you know, 
defend it. We'll win the line out. Do not give up possession. We will go forward. We'll take it forward. We'll end up with a scrum. And then we had a move that we, the backs had sort of basically, you know, practised until their noses bleed, cut one double loop. And effectively, that's what happened. Now, I'm not 100% sure, Matt, I would have done it the same. I, I think I might yeah, have wow. short, kicked short to get possession with four minutes to go. And when that scrum came, that Noddy called cut one double loop, we could have kicked a field goal to go to extra time. And I might have just said, Noddy, get in the slot behind me, we go to extra time. But not again demonstrated that get the process right. The school mm. after itself. Everything he said to the guys was about process. Trust ourselves. We can still pull this out of this rabbit out of the hat. And, and thank God we did. And did you? Were you sitting on the bench wondering whether you were going to play a semi final? Should the team get through? Or how was your injury at that point? Were you shattered? Were you? Matt, I, I, I realised that my injury actually came in a game against Samoa in the second pool match. Um, okay. And when I came off after 20 minutes, I thought I'd rebuggered my knee um, and, and what have you. I realised probably within 20 minutes of coming off, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, and so we had a fantastic physiotherapist who's a magnificent guy. Um, I knew I could be right for the semi-final and final, but okay. I have no doubt I decided sitting in the grandstand, being able to do nothing about um, the outcome of the game, I would never coach sport. I could <laughs> never. It was just too frustrating. And it, very, seriously, very seriously, I, I realised that day I you could never, never coach. Ever coach, a, coach a team at high level because it was just so frustrating not to have any input in the actual yes. playing game. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. When you've been at that level yep. yourself, you know. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I'm pretty sure your beautiful wife, Angela, has told me a story about you being unwell before a match. What was that match, Nick, where you were quite unwell and you couldn't make a reception or...? It, it was the final, Matt. It, that was for the final. Yeah. Okay, so, so we've made the final. Now talk us through that. Look, I, I suppose it, it was, you know, all of a sudden 20 teams become two teams. The press converge around you. Um, you know, you know that this is going to be one of the most important things in your life um, to hmm. that date. Um, as, well, we, we had a, a young daughter at the time who was, um, you know, Jess was born in July 91, so a few months before the World Cup, she came over with Ange and Ange's mum. I just think, Matt, I'm pretty healthy and and I don't get crook. Um, the only times I do, or I have been crook, you know, just momentarily, it doesn't last long, is when I feel enormous pressure. Mm. And on the Wednesday before that um, that final, um, you know, I just was feeling unwell and I, I, I just, you know, had to go to bed for a while and what have you. And I think it was just the pressure that built up, you know. That, sure that all of a sudden we had a lot of young guys in that team and, and you know, I, it, it, it's funny just trying to recall what, what happened, but, I, you know, we had, we had the celebrations after and, and, you know, it was it was a fantastic occasion at Twickenham and, you know, being, you know, the Prime Minister of, of the UK coming in um, and, and getting the trophy from the Queen and, and, mm. and then going to the big dinner that night in in stuffy in a stuffy london hotel probably a thousand people and next thing i know and i I, i'd only had a few beers i mean we we celebrated but i don't had a few beers at this stage but again it was the feeling i had on that wednesday and all of a sudden i had to go to the bathroom and you know it it wasn't that pleasant and um and (laughs) and i remember going up at about nine o'clock that evening to my vice captain uh noddy michael liner and saying nod you're going to have to take over from here because I have to jump in a cab. I have to get back to the hotel. I'm not well. Yeah, wow. By this stage, I've had a heap of drink and said, I can't speak. <laughs> I said, mate, he said, you can't do this to me. I said, it's already done. I've got to get out of here. Yeah, so, wow. you know, the next day, Matt, I was, I was um, you know, probably one of the few sober ones. The boys kicked on, as you could imagine. But Yes. But that's probably what, what Ange would have been alluding yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. And so you were fine. You were healthy and fine through the, through the final. Physically, yeah, look, look, I, yeah. I, I certainly felt it, and and what yeah. happened, but but obviously I was still a bit run down. But no. Yeah, for sure. You you touched on the Queen there. 
I know you've met Nelson Mandela as well. You've met some uh, incredible people in your journey. Uh, who stands out to you? What's what? What was meeting Nelson Mandela like for for someone like yourself, Nick? Yeah, maybe just to touch on the Queen first, because yeah, uh, sure. In these um, you know pandem- <laughs> pandemic uh, times, times, you get to watch the Crown. I think the Crown's amazing. Going back on when we look at the Queen's leadership, you know, during these times in in England, when when the United Kingdom has been so badly impacted, and you know, to hear her, you know, comments in relation mm. to the 75th anniversary of um, the victory celebrations to hear her comments, um, you know, just encouraging the nation that we'll get through this. Um, and to look at the crown and to think she was 21 when I think she was um, think I passed away and, and the pressures she's had. And, you know, I've, I've visited the palace, been lucky enough in 84 and 88. Um, you know, when we toured there, I was lucky enough in 91 to, to receive the trophy. I, in 98, when I lived in Paris, um, I was invited as to just by, um, as one of just six people to participate in a lunch at the palace. Um, after the difficult, I think the only, my recollection is the only mistake the palace made was after the death of, of Diana in Paris. And for whatever reason, uh, the communications team just, you know, shut down the, you know, the communication and the Queen went up to to, um, to Scotland and and the people just needed to hear from, from Her Majesty. And, mm. um, and after that, they decided just to have a, a monthly lunch with six nondescript people. And I was included in that in 98 and that was wow. fantastic. And we had a really great frank chat and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd met her daughter and, and um, during the 2000, um, sorry, I'd, I'd met a daughter before because she was the patron of Scottish rugby. And, um, mm. and so we just had a really good open and frank discussion and she was terrific and she wanted to know, you know, because we were having a referendum the next year in 99, um, yeah, wow. what I thought about some of the issues there and what she might do. And so she, she's an amazing woman yeah. um, who has done phenomenal work for the Commonwealth and um, and for the world. And... And then you mentioned Mandela. Yeah, I mean, what a life. Um, 27 years um, mm. in prison um, because he stood up for the anti-apartheid cause and, um, and, and to think that, you know, I could just imagine Mandela shortly after he was released in 1990 um, and then became president in 94. But shortly after that, he actually... The Queen invited him to come over to the palace and he slept. He had a couple of nights at the palace and what that must have been like. <laughs> because I've been to his prison cell in Robben Island in just off Cape Town. And I can just imagine him lying awake in the bed at Buckingham Palace um, and thinking about that little two metre by two metre cell yeah. for 27 years and thinking what an amazing transformation in life. But, Matt, I, I keep on coming back, I suppose putting rugby in perspective again to the 95 World Cup because Nelson was, or Madiba was, was the head of the African National Congress and, and every one of his senior, senior ministers wanted to get rid of the Springbok logo on the jersey because it represented to them, you know, what was everything that they hated about apartheid. Um, mm. And Mandela was smart enough and clever enough and had enough wisdom to say, guys, if we're going to have true reconciliation in this country, we need to respect what our former enemy cherishes. Mm. We said we need to keep the springbok on the jersey. We add the protea, the South African flower underneath it. Um, and then that 95 World Cup, when I went down to commentate for Channel 10 and to see him wear that jersey the day of the final, um, and what he did for that team, what he did for that nation, because I took my team over in 92. Um, they weren't a part of the 91 World Cup. Sure. But F.W. de Klerk uh, had talked about and, and said we're going to have democratic elections in 94. And so the ANC consented to the opening, opening up of South Africa to international sport, cricket and rugby in particular. Um, but they set conditions on our touring and, and I won't go into the detail but they were breached and we were lucky to play our test match in Cape Town um, 
but back then in 92, the country was hugely divided. Coloured and black people came up to me in Cape Town. They recognised me as the captain of the World Cup winning team the year before and said, we're back and we're we're behind you, um, the Wallabies, Um, as they were always behind the All Blacks, anyone who played the Springboks. Wow. And and to see that division within a country. But then three years later in the 95 World Cup to see how Madiba had united the country. It became a nation. And when they won that World Cup, people of all colours were dancing in the streets and it was the most phenomenal thing. And I, I believe it will always be the greatest World Cup. Now, last year in Japan comes close. Amazing. Because you had a black captain. Mm, amazing. And he was just such a wonderful leader and, and he spoke about Madiba and he spoke about, you know, you could never, ever in the history of South Africa, South African rugby imagine that you could have a black captain that could win a World Cup. Just incredible. And, and an incredible... Incredible to think about how powerful sport is it's in exactly that whole process. Madiba spoke about two things. He spoke about education and the power of education and he spoke about the power of sport to unite people. Yeah, it's just awesome, isn't it? It's awesome, isn't it? What, what about great players? We've spoken about great people. What about great players? Who is a, who do you, you know, it's hard to single out anyone, I suppose, but who was the best player you played with and then are there any names that come to mind as far as opponents just amazingly great opponents look the guys I played with I mean there'd be there'd be probably a dozen and more that that I would say it was just fantastic to pull on the same jersey um and I'm not going to go through them all and I'll miss that's that's always the problem with this yeah but people that some some of your listeners um won't even sort of know that well, but people like Tim Gavin. Yeah. He got injured a week before the 91 World Cup, but he was my number eight and we had such a great understanding. He was such a reliable player and such a tough guy. People like Steve Cutler, um, you know, Mm -hmm. who who actually didn't even play the tests in in, in, uh, 91, but he was a part of the squad, but he was right there in the middle 80s when I came on and was such an important part in the Grand Slam Tour and the Bledisloe in 86. I mean, you can never you can never leave out someone like Simon Poitivan. Yes. The Lionheart. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to, to, to pass balls in my first four tests and then he sadly retired to Mark Eller. And, and what a privilege that was to play a <laughs> test with Michael Liner. Yeah. Um, amazing. And then to get, you know, a whole bunch of these young guys coming through like Jason Little and Tim Horan and John Eels and Willie Offerhen Galway, um, you know, and, and Phil Kearns. Um, and, and so they're, they're players that I was lucky enough to play with that would, you know, that, that would pick themselves in a world 15 in those years. Um, I, I think of them, of them all, as a person who had longevity, who never let you down, who would always prepare, you know, so well and would always, you know, play so well and suffered an enormous injury and went through an unbelievable recuperation um, and then was basically the player of the tournament in the 99 World Cup but was also so instrumental in our 91 World Cup. I, I think I'd say the greatest player I played with was Tim Horan. Yeah, wow. Wow. What's it like, you know, Timmy Horan obviously played for Queensland in the Reds uh, as opposed to your New South Wales side. What's it like when you're fiercely competitive in that fixture? And I remember back in those days it was fiercely competitive, the New South Wales versus Queensland. Yeah, yeah, this is long before any super rugby came about. But then you're in the same lineup. What's that like when you then pull on the same jersey and you're in the same team? Matt, with the exception of, I reckon, probably 1989, um, when there was a little bit of, sorry, 1990 it was, a little bit of argy bargy, and there was probably from Queensland a little bit of desire, you know, to maybe look to shift the, you know, the coach and the, you know, senior sure. leadership of the team. I, I never remember any issues. Um, yeah. 
yeah, you're dead right. It was it was full on, um, and I'm sure it's the same with the kangaroos and and what have you. You know, when you look at state of origin and how yep. the 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 um, tribalism kicks in for state of origin and sure. Queensland, New South Wales in in um, country. My experience in ten years, with the exception of that one year, 1990 was. Um, you pull on that gold jersey and everyone gets you're nice. Absolutely, yeah. and um, you know I, I, that, that's that's my experience. I can never remember any big issues or politics or um, or difficulties that I had to deal with as a captain. Yeah, that's awesome. What about a little bit aside from sport as such here? But I know when we first met, Nick, some seven or eight years ago or whenever it was, we were paired together in the New Zealand Open golf together. And I remember the tournament organiser at the time, a good friend of yours, Michael Glading, I think put us together because he knew I was a Christian and he knew you were a Christian and he thought we'd get along. And we have famously gotten along and become great family friends and um, we've stayed in each other's houses now over those years and uh, we've got that common common thread with our, our Lord and Saviour. What, where does faith fit into your, your life? When did that happen and how did that um, play a role in your life as far as sport, business and family? Yeah, man, I, I grew up, as I said, in the, in the Sutherland Shire. I've, I've got fantastic parents. I visited them both today. Sadly, mum's got dementia and she's been in an aged care place for two and a half years and dad's been in aged care having suffered a stroke for a year. I raised my folks because magnificent people just mm. made a huge commitment to me and my brothers. Um, you know, without them, I could never have had the life and, and had the opportunities that I've had. But interestingly, growing up in, you know, in the houses down south, um, you know, we, we, we didn't have a church involvement. I, I wasn't brought up in a Christian mm. household. Um, I started to go to a Baptist church because um, I met a couple of good-looking young ladies. Uh, I always think God moves in mysterious ways. Um, <laughs> and they invited me along to church and I started going at the age of 17. Okay. And probably two months after sort of going along and hearing the gospel and the undiluted message of the gospel, um, you know, I, I started to understand who Christ was and um, why he hung on a cross and it became compelling. And then, you know, as you'd know, the Holy Spirit gets in your face and, we all have different experiences, Christians, as, as, as to, you know, how salvation comes around. Um, but I put my hand up and, you know, so I've been a, I've been a Christian for 40 years now. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster ride. You have your good weeks and your good months and your good years and you have occasionally your not-so-good weeks and your not-so-good sure. months. But, you know, you know me pretty well and my wife. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that... that you know, generally speaking, I've I've I, I walked the walk, but just as the Apostle Paul, you know, wrote about, um, you know, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament, you you got to continually strive to become more Christ-like. You got to continually mm. strive to, you know, the journey doesn't end, um, and 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 that's the battle, and and that's, but but you've got you, you've got so much support. I mean, all you have to do is get into the Word. Um, you know, connect in prayer and connect in meditation and connect with the Holy Spirit and you, and you can get great support. But, you know, to cut to the chase, Matt, it's, it's, it's the most important thing in my wife and my life, mm. in our faith and, and walking the walk and being the hands and feet of God in, in, in our life. Um, that's the only way God can connect to people um, through us, um, through us Christians. And, you know, I'm... I'm happy to say that um, over the years, we've been able to be a blessing on many, many people and we continue to be. But at the age of 58, um, you know, I, I think the best years are in front of me, mate. So, um, yeah, I, it, it's a very, very important thing. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's, it's something that's, you know, it, it's something I, I strive and go after. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's interesting talking there because I know how challenging you are with that and with with my uh, sorry, you got to call it. Come that in. was my wife. My wife. <laughs> um, I know how challenging you are with that, and you continue to encourage and uplift and challenge me in in my journey 
uh, with my faith as well. And just listening to you talk then, Nick, it reminded me of, you know, your training ethic with the boys on on the park. You you wanna you wanna stand for what's right and you, you let's get this right, you know, and um, but we can always be better, you know, we can always be looking to improve and and, and we're um, always gonna make mistakes. That's why yeah. that's why yeah. cross I'm gonna cross. And yeah. um, you know, and but the great thing is there's grace and mercy. Um mm. and and you know we've got to be focused on on turning our mistakes around and, and getting rid of the rubbish in our lives and um you know looking at our lives seated at the right hand of, of God where yeah. we're, we're told we are in the Bible, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, alongside Jesus. Where is the next five years in the business life of Nick Far Jones and, and your involvement with rugby uh, as rugby transitions out of this COVID period. You know, what, what role do you see yourself having in that and, you know, in your life as a dad and a husband and, you know, four great kids and what, what's the next few years look like for Nick Far Jones if we look ahead? Man, I, I'm not a great crystal baller. I, I don't. You know, I, I look mm. more day by day, week by sure. week in front of me. Um, I really enjoy what I do. So I work in a private equity group that, um, you know, that we manage a few billion US dollars and we invest and lend globally in the mining sector. I really enjoy that. I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy the sector. I think the mining industry globally is a fantastic industry, you know, particularly in, in emerging third world countries. It employs so many people. It gives them great stability in their life, it supports mm. communities, it provides, um, it provides power, it provides water, it provides infrastructure, it provides hospitals. You know, we, we've got about a third of our exposure in Africa, um, particularly in West Africa, so countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire. Wow. Um, I see the impact that these, these projects make. I mean, people can be anti-mining, you know, for, for no good reason. They don't understand it. But, but I really like the sector. I've been involved in it post-law for 25 years. You know, firstly with the investment bank, the French investment bank, and now, you know, 10 years with Taurus. So I like that industry and, and um, you know, just the, the mixture it has and, and um, you know, the, the, the global focus that we have. Um, as I said, I'll continue to, to look to, you know, grow my, my Christian walk and be a blessing. I, I as you know, my wife founded Stand Tall at the not mm. that has a huge impact on so many kids and we've got a big live stream coming up which will hopefully go to thousands of schools and we're including now Lifeline and Salvos and Mission Australia in that. Um, and I chair that board. Um, it's awesome. Which I get great satisfaction out of. We're, we're looking to actually do a live event next year in Brisbane, mate, so we might yes. be asking people to come onto the board. Um, it's exciting. I've obviously looking after mum and dad, you know, they, they did that for me for a long time. Sure. Um, they gave me every opportunity. I, I, I look to give back to them as much as I can in supporting them in, in, you know, perhaps probably the last few years of their life. So look, busy. Yeah, life sure. And there's a bunch of other things, but you know, just constantly hopefully being able to be used to be a blessing on people. And, and that's the way forward, but I'm not a big planner. I don't, I don't go beyond much, you know, a month or two and who knows i was i was supposed to be in france in july you know for my yeah. french goddaughter's wedding and you know who knows you know when we're going through these panic pandemic situations you know what's around the corner so no that's right i don't want to plan a lot i i yeah. I, I want to just see what happens in life and see what goes on but as i said at the age of 58 um i, I truly believe that for me my wife the best years are in front of us you don't look 58 Thank we're you, standing we're standing here looking at each other on the Zoom, which our listeners can't see, but you look a lot younger than I look at my 44, so... <laughs> my wife's uh, young, mate. <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, so final question for you, Nick. Now, this is a question I ask, have asked all of my guests so far in every episode, and what it is is if you could be any sports person, past or present for a day, who would it be and why? Um, that's an interesting question, Matt. Um, I think I'd, I think I'd go back to my, my two boyhood heroes. I think I'd go back to someone like Bjorn Borg. Yeah, great. You know, who had such a temperament issue and was able to overcome it. 
and I think won five French Opens and six Wimbledons. And you look at the guy who was the first real double-fisted backhand player, and you could think that that makes sense on what the French call terre two, which is clay. But how on earth could a double-fisted tennis player win <laughs> six Wimbledons? Yeah. No, on grass. Where the and ball keeps so low. Absolutely. And so I, I think he's one of the most amazing sports people. I mean, the privilege I had to meet Jack Nicholas when he came out to the Australian a few times and, and what an amazing golfer he was. Um, you know, I, I think I'd go back, I always go back to what, what impacted me as a youngster and what inspired mm. me as a youngster to answer your question. So it'd be those there two guys. It'd be those yeah, one guys of, and, and just to walk a, a day in their shoes. Be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, reckon, I reckon it'd be I'd be Nicholas's it'd be Borg's victory over Jimmy Connors that went five sets. Yes. And was mainly tiebreakers in the in the deciding sets. And it would be Nicholas's victory at the Masters when his boy, Jackie Jr. was caddying in from memory it was nineteen eighty six. Eighty six Masters, yeah. The 30 on the back nine. Um, <laughs> and he said, oh, so Jackie, good. Jackie just kept on reading them right and I just kept on putting them right. <laughs> Can I you imagine Imagine back. living that day out? I mean, so good. And, and given that he was one of your, your childhood, you know, sort of sporting superstars you looked up to. And he was 46 to, so. years of age, mate. So yeah, it's, it's not over yet, Matt. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, Nick, uh, thank you very much for your time. It is always Awesome to chat to you. Um, thanks for the time you've given my okay. listeners this week on The Hard Yards. And I wish you and your family all the very best in the coming weeks and months ahead. Thanks, mate. And back to you and your family, mate. How good was that? I want to thank Nick for his time, which I know is precious. So thanks, Nick, for sharing your journey with us and some real insights into how you became the player you did. And to go on and lead the Wallabies to that World Cup win in 91 was just awesome. Thank you listeners once again for tuning in this week and I look forward to you jumping on again when I engage next week with one of our sporting elite sharing their story. Until then, don't forget to share this podcast around to anyone you think might like it and of course, put in the hard yards whatever you get up to this week. Catch you next week team.